So uh, Merry Christmas, we've already shared that. Uh, we had a great outreach yesterday, and uh, we're really excited about that, the opportunity to go out into the community and touch uh, the lives of business owners as well as people in the community, uh, and just really, really a cool thing that we got to do. But you know, for Christmas, as it's already been brought out, Christmas is a time of joy for a lot of people, and it also can be a time of pain for a lot of people. And and I just want to share this real, real briefly with you that whether it is joy or pain, we need to ask ourselves what's behind that. If it's a time of joy, is it because I remember the BB gun I got when I was 12 years old? Or is it because I remember the great, uh, great meals that we had? Is that what makes it joyful? Shouldn't, that shouldn't be it. And, and if it's a time of pain, then I want to ask myself, is there anything that I can look at that would eclipse the pain? Yeah, I, I had a hard year not too many years ago, had surgery twice, had MRSA, and just a bunch of other turmoil happened that year. And for a while, I referred to that as like hell year. And then I realized that my first granddaughter was born that year. And when that, that really dawned on me, I thought, wait a second, Phoebe trumps everything else. She is so incredible that surgery, MRSA, whatever it might have been, pales into insignificance when I just focus on her. And so I just made the, I just decided, okay, that was the best year of my life. That's the best. And here's what I want to say. Don't rejoice because of the great memories. And don't let the pain rob you of the fact that King Jesus was born into the world on this day, okay? Jesus came into the world at this, we celebrated in this season, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He lived in heaven. He had all the riches and beauty and power and life of heaven. But he came here to redeem us, to become the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's something to celebrate. And, and uh, we... we uh, and, I'm not saying it's easy to get past the pain. I'm not saying that. But what I am doing, I want to give you something, kind of like a leverage point to, to, to look at and to say, wait a second. You know, Jesus is so much better. The pain pales into insignificance in comparison to King Jesus coming into the world. So that's why we're here. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And uh, th that's, that's why we gather to study the Bible because of Jesus. We've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew, and we're titling this series Following the King, because Matthew was written to present Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He wrote it primarily with, with in his mind, the, the Jewish audience in mind, because the temple has just been destroyed right before, uh, right before uh, Matthew was written, and they've been dispersed throughout the Mediterranean world, and he wants the Christian believers out there to know that they have put their faith in the right place. And so he presents Jesus as king. And in this, we see today uh, an event we come to in the early life of Jesus. It could have been as, as much as two years after his birth. But we see an event where there are foreign emissaries that come to celebrate the birth of King Jesus. And that was a kingly event. See, there was a lot of diplomacy that happened in, in the Middle East in those days. And it, primarily, it would be nations close to you. But you, if, if a king died, you would send emissaries. 
or perhaps even you as the king of your land would go to, uh, to bring comfort to the family and the nation that had lost their king. Uh, they would send emissaries to each other to form peace treaties. But also when a new king was installed, you would send an envoy to go and to help celebrate this, this new thing that has happened. And that's what we see happening here in this passage with the Magi. Magi probably, they were probably some form of astrologers. They were wise men, uh, you know, part, part of the category of people that had wisdom. And, and very likely astrology in those days wasn't so much a, a tabloid type of a thing or an article in the newspaper. It was a more of a scientific approach to, uh, you, to you know, what the stars were telling them and all of that. But uh, it, it's really interesting that these magi traveled anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 miles to get to Jesus. They, they took a trip that took them months to make. And that's because they had some understanding of who Jesus was. You know, there's a commentator, William Barclay, who writes um, commentaries with a pretty strong historical leaning. He will often have a, a good historical insight. And in, in reading his commentary on this, he maintains that there was a sense of expectation and anticipation in the whole Middle East around this season of time that there was going to be a new king born. And get this, not just a new king born, but a king from Judah, a king from the land of Judea would be born who would rise up to rule the whole world. That, that, was, uh, th that belief was sprinkled throughout the whole Mediterranean world, even as far west as Rome. And, and he backed that up with documentation and quotes from a number of different people. So these magi coming, they really are uh, a, a, an indication, a, a, a future glimpse of Jesus as king of the whole earth. But one of the things about the magi is this, that you normally, you would go to a nation that was close to you, uh, a neighboring nation, or maybe two or three nations away, uh, but you wouldn't go so far that you would never have any relationship with that country, or with that king. Does that make sense? You go to the king that's close enough to impact your nation. But in this case, they went well beyond what would have in those days uh, been, been a normal political influence, which again shows they had this incredible insight into who Jesus was. So let's just start reading our way through the passage and, and try to ask ourselves, where did they get the insight that they had, and, um, and, and what does it really mean for us today? But Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, here's what we read. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Okay, they aren't just political envoys. This isn't just a curiosity to them. They have come to worship. And so there's insight that they have spiritually into this whole thing. And you just, I just asked myself, where did they get it? You know, how did they get this insight? And someone might say, well, God may have given it to them directly. And that's very possible. God does that. But that's not God's normal approach. Normally, God speaks to people through other people. Normally, there's a chain of events where human beings are involved. That's the normal process that God uses. Once in a while, he will just sovereignly do something, just break in 
And he, and he says, I'm just going to make this happen right now apart from human means. So it could have been God speaking directly to the Magi, but I, I don't think that's the, the best explanation. Some might say, well, maybe they just read it in the stars, and, uh, you know, I, I have a hard time accepting that. But here, here's something that I do think is intriguing and even eminently possible, and maybe even I would say it's likely, and that is this, that the Magi were spiritual descendants of Daniel. You read the book of Daniel, and you see how Daniel in uh, Babylon, the influence that he had there, and he was actually considered part of this large group of advisors to the king that they called wise men or Magi. And in that case, some of them were actual magicians, some of them were sorcerers, some of them were astrologers, some of them were just people like Daniel, who, who really knew the living God. But Daniel, if, if this is true, then this means that Daniel's life had an impact that lasted 400 years. That's at least 10 generations. And then that makes me ask the question, well, if that's true, and I lean strongly that direction... If that's true, then what type of a man was Daniel that he would leave a legacy that would last 400 years? That he would, he would impact lives that impacted lives that impacted lives for 10, 12 generations. And you look at Daniel, and to understand his background, Daniel uh, was an Israelite. He lived in, in Israel, Jew. And he lived in the time that Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful king in the known world at that time, came into Israel and defeated the nation, destroyed Jerusalem, sacked Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple. And so what he was doing by that was he was trying to destroy the Jewish identity by destroying the temple. And then he carted their people off to another land to live. And by doing that, he was trying to destroy the heart and the soul and the identity of this people that were God's chosen people, and Daniel, one of them. And so he picked the smartest and the brightest, and he took them actually back to Babylon with him so they could receive training under his uh, watch, under his care, that would make them advisors to him. So he would have advisors from a number of different lands and a number of different backgrounds. Well... Nebuchadnezzar was the guy that did all of this to Daniel's homeland. He's the guy that destroyed the temple. He's the guy that ripped Daniel away from his family and his home and carted him off when he was just a teenager into a foreign land. And yet, look at Daniel's heart. Somehow, Daniel was able to find compassion in his heart for Nebuchadnezzar. There was a point at which Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And that's how Daniel became known, because Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and Daniel interpreted it. And it was a positive uh, interpretation the first time. But now there's another dream, and in this dream, the interpretation of it is not really positive towards Nebuchadnezzar. And you would think that Daniel would have held some resentment in his heart towards Nebuchadnezzar and, and been thinking, okay, finally he's going to get what's, what's coming to him. But the way Daniel began the interpretation was this. He said, O king, if only this applied to your enemies and not to you. There was compassion in his heart. I mean, here's a pagan king, and there's compassion in his heart. The pagan king who destroyed his homeland, there's compassion in his heart for that king. 
And not only that, but uh, Daniel is thrown in the mix with all of these other magi, all these other wise men that, as I said, some of them were just flat out sorcerers and magicians. And, and, and so, in effect, they would be kind of like the cultural enemies of Daniel. Because Daniel is a believer in the true God, and here he's living in this pagan land that's filled with all this sorcery and magicians. And, and these other wise men, they would have been very easily viewed as like political rivals, cultural slash political rivals. But it, what Daniel does is this. He pleads on their behalf. He intercedes on their behalf. And when Daniel got the interpretation of the dream, see what happened was, Nebuchadnezzar had the dream. This was his first dream. And, uh, and he tells his wise men, he says, tell me the meaning of the dream. And they say, well, tell us the dream and we'll tell you the meaning of it. And he says, oh, no, no. He says, I know how you guys operate. You tell me what the dream is. And if you tell me what the dream is, then I'll believe your interpretation of it. I'll believe you really have insight. And so the wise men are all just saying, well, this is impossible. No one can possibly know this. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, all right, kill them all. He just says, kill them all. And he sends, he sends his guard out to hunt down and to kill every magi, every wise man in Babylon. And when they come to Daniel, Daniel says, what's going on? He apparently wasn't part of the initial conversation. And so he pleads with the guy and he says, no, wait, give us 24 hours. They pray, God gives the dream to Daniel and the interpretation to Daniel. And so when Daniel then goes to the king, and gives him the dream and the interpretation. He also intercedes for all the other wise men and, and has mercy on them. And so Daniel was a man that had compassion and mercy just as part of his nature and part of his character. And yet he also was a man who stood for truth. When they first took them there, the, um, the, the, the supervisors that they had wanted Daniel and his three companions to eat food that violated the Old Testament uh, dietary laws. And Daniel refused to do it. Now, he, he refused in an honorary way. He, he didn't just stomp his feet. There was no long bony finger pointed like we often picture prophets doing. He made a godly appeal and said, give me two weeks. Let me eat my food, and then you can compare me to them and see you know, uh, how, how, you know, how well off I am. But he would not compromise is the point. And then later, much later, when he had en enemies that politically did not like the fact that Daniel had the position he had, and they were plotting to try to get rid of Daniel, and they persuaded, at this point in time, Darius the Mede, uh, Darius is now the king, Nebuchadnezzar's gone, and um, they persuaded him to make a rule, a law, that nobody could pray except to Darius himself. And he didn't realize that they were making that law. They wanted him to make that law so they could catch Daniel. Because they knew Daniel well enough to know he's going to do what he believes is right no matter what the law is. And we'll get him. This is where they throw Daniel in the lion's den. And, um, and, and then Daniel survives that. But he would not, he, he would not uh, compromise he went home, and instead of just praying in secret, he threw the windows open like he always does and prayed right there publicly where everyone could see. And so Daniel had this ability to stand for truth no matter what, and yet at the same time have a heart that was filled with compassion and mercy even for his greatest enemies. 
So you want to have an impact that lasts 400 years. That's the formula right there, okay? That's the formula. You be a person of truth. You be a person that stands for truth. Not, not out of insecurity, not out of fear or anything like that, but just because you love God. But you also be a person whose heart is so filled with compassion and mercy that everybody that knows you recognizes that the foundation of your character is compassion and mercy and goodness and love and kindness. That's how you have a 400-year impact right there, okay? And, you know, it may be this is, could be like a hint to some of us today in our culture. You know, we have a lot of political turmoil. We've had, uh, you know, just all of the stuff that we've seen happen. And the, the worst part of it, I think, is how, how people treat our leaders, and, and how, you know, how leaders are demeaned and ridiculed and lied about, uh, you know, on both sides. And then we have political enemies like Daniel did, and he goes to bat for them and saves their lives because he's a merciful, compassionate person, and yet an honoring person. And I, I just look at that and I think, okay, this is a pretty good hint for me that, uh, you know, that, that I want to have a heart that is a heart of compassion for my leaders. And that even though I might agree or disagree with them, that my heart's going to be one filled with compassion and mercy and honor. And so that's, that's, what, that's how Daniel lived, and that's how he had this impact that uh, lasted for 400 years. It's an amazing thing. In fact, the way Daniel lived led Nebuchadnezzar at one point to make a decree across the whole kingdom that said, everybody needs to know this. There's no other God like the God of Daniel. No other God like the God of Daniel. And later, uh, Darius or Darius the Mede, uh, who he, he was from Media Persia and came in and ruled Babylon. Uh, when, when he was, saw Daniel come out of the lion's den, he did something very similar, except something even more than that. He said, everybody should worship this God of Daniel. Everybody should. Now, I think that there's a twofold thing happening here. One is just the impact that Daniel's having through his life, through the Holy Spirit, working in the lives of other people that are going to pass on to others and pass on to others and pass on to others, making disciples who make disciples. But there's also the ruler of the land in both cases is making a public declaration that the God of Israel is the one true God. And declarations like that have an impact. And there, there's a, something reverberates in the spirit realm when, when things like that happen. And so you have, you have this kind of like blessing just, just poured out across the land for anybody who wants to take hold of it. And there were people there who decided that they were going to take hold of that and flow in this same line and in this same path as Daniel. And so the magi that uh, come to see Jesus, uh, I believe very possibly were just so influenced by the culture that Daniel left behind that that's where they got their insight. And in fact, Daniel uh, had scripture with him. We know that because he was reading the prophet Jeremiah. And when he read about Jeremiah prophesying that the captivity would last 70 years, then he starts praying that the captivity would end because it was just about 70 years. So we know he had Old Testament scriptures. And it would be very easy just to look at this and recognize that the Magi read Isaiah, that they understood what Isaiah said. We're going to look at that verse a little later, but um, th this is just a remarkable thing. So they come and they say, we've seen his star in the east, verse 2, 
Verse 3 says this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. All right, troubled. It means stirred up, agitated, disturbed. And believe me, Herod was disturbed in the head. He, he was an evil man. He had two of his own children executed because one of his other children accused them of plotting against him, which he found out later was false. He had, get this, his favorite wife, multiple wives, but he had his favorite wife strangled to death because of rumors that she was trying to unseat him and take over the kingdom. And then on his deathbed, he discovers that one of his other sons was behind both of those things. And so before he dies, he has that son executed. And as well, Herod said this, he said, when I die, no one will weep over me, but I'm going to make sure that they weep. And so he left orders to collect, uh, to gather the most prominent men of the city. And the, the moment that it was announced that Herod was dead, they were supposed to be executed. It's not clear whether they actually followed through with that or not, but that just tells you the kind of person he was. And so uh, when it says all Jerusalem was troubled with him, that means they're troubled because he's troubled. And they know when Herod's troubled, heads fall. You know, bad things happen. And so you go on and you read this. It says, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, the prophet Micah, by the way, not our Micah, but another Micah prophet. <laughs> says this, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So you see, in some respects, Herod and the Magi are, are juxtaposed against each other. The Magi get insight. They see what's happening, and they come to worship. Herod, he goes to his, so, you know, so to speak, wise men who understand the Scriptures, and Herod believes the scriptures enough to believe that what they say is where this king is going to be born, but all he wants is to get that information so he can know what God's up to, so he can resist what God's trying to do. That's evil. That's, that's a distorted, darkened mind that does that sort of thing. And so uh, Bethlehem, small town about five miles south of Jerusalem. It's located up on a ridge 2,000 feet above sea level. If you're in Bethlehem, in the right spot, you can look down off the ridge. You can see across the Dead Sea. And actually, it's the place where Ruth, uh, the Moabitess, actually uh, came with her mother-in-law and where she met Boaz and married Boaz. So at any point in time she wanted to, she could go to a high point around there and see her homeland uh, to the east. But it's also the place that David lived as a boy. These are the hills where David was a shepherd. And so it is the city of David, Bethlehem. And it's also the place where Joseph's family came from. And so Joseph owned property there because you weren't allowed to sell your family property. You could lease it for 49 years, but it always had to come back into the family line. And so Joseph and Mary come, which is a very interesting thing when you overlay Luke into this and you realize that 
that they had their baby uh, in very likely what would have been a cave, a stable type of cave. He, they had family in this town. And at this point, they hadn't yet married. And so it's very possible that the family rejected them. It wasn't just an innkeeper saying, oh, no, the inn's full, you can't come in. But there was family there that was saying, we can't take you into our home. You're pregnant, and you guys aren't married. And so it, it kind of adds a little more um, living drama to the whole thing and, and maybe some compassion in our hearts for everybody involved. But verses 7 and 8, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child. And when you found him, report to me so that I too may worship, come and worship him. All right, we know he's lying. That's not his intent. If you know the story, uh, once the Magi have left, Herod sends soldiers to Bethlehem and has every child, every boy there, two years old and younger, slaughtered. And so that's, that's what's really behind his request for them to come back and tell him. And, but these Magi, for some reason, they seem to be a little bit naive, you know, you'd think that they would be able to discern that this is a pretty evil guy and we can't trust him. But um, it takes a, an angelic visitation to straighten their thinking out here in another verse or two. But um, it says this, after hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So the star, the light they had seen that, that directed them to come to Jerusalem, to Judea, reappears. Apparently, they saw this star, this light in the heavens, and they calculated the trajectory and everything, and they knew, okay, if we follow that, we're going to end up in Judea. And lo and behold, that's where the, everyone was believing a new king was going to be born in Judea. And so they knew where to go, and they make this whole arduous journey without a star guiding them. Okay, it disappears at some point, but they kept going. They didn't give up. Even though they didn't have the, live, the, the actual moment-by-moment -moment experience of the star being there, they still followed through, and, they, and they, they, they made it the whole way, which shows us incredible perseverance. And I think even more, it shows us their insight into truth, uh, the truth of God and what, what God's doing. But it says that the star now turns south, and it actually led them five miles. Now, a comet doesn't do that. A comet does not, is not going to lead you on a five-mile trek, and neither would the, the alignment of Jupiter or Mars or whatever planets would be aligned. But there is a lot in the Bible about fire and light. It starts in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned and God put Adam and Eve out of the garden. He put an angel there with a fiery sword to keep them from going back into the garden and eating of the tree of life, which would have meant they would have been confirmed in sin. They would have been, been irredeemable because they would have had eternal life in the state they were in. And so fire, right there is where we begin with fire. It's uh, throughout the Old Testament when Moses has his calling, he sees a fiery bush, which is burning brightly enough. It's daytime, and Moses sees this bush that's burning, and it's not being consumed. When the Israelites are delivered from Egypt, 
It was a column of smoke by day, but fire by night that led them. And then when they actually built the tabernacle, which later became the temple, and they have this one place in there called the Holy of Holies, God's presence filled that place with an, an effervescent type of burning light. They, they call it the Shekinah glory. And so God's presence is so often represented as light, um, even to the point of saying that in Acts chapter 2, the flames of fire that came down on the heads of the believers and entered into them was the very same fire that Moses saw in the burning bush. It was the same fire that they, that they saw in the wilderness. And it was the same fire that burned in the holy of holies. And so what is this then, this star that they saw? Here's what I think, very possible. In Luke's gospel, when the angels appeared to the shepherds, and it says, suddenly, there was a heavenly host, thousands, tens and thousands and thousands and all, multiple thousands of angels, millions of angels singing. And what actually happened there wasn't like the angels were all off stage, and then God says, okay, it's your cue, get out there. No, what happened was God ripped the fabric of this world in two so that the other world could shine through. And the angels were there the whole time. It was just God just opened it up so that they could see these millions of angels all worshiping, and the brightness of the glory of the Lord was shining all around them. Now, I just picture that, that rip just going the whole way up into space, the whole way through our atmosphere, so that somewhere up there, maybe even if you're into movies like this, you know, the whole thing starts here, and then it goes up, and then a big burst of light at the top. I don't know about that, but... But that, that could very likely be, and I think probably was, what they saw. They saw the glory that night that Jesus was born that God showed to the angels through, to the shepherds when he, when he opened up heaven and released the angels to worship. And so with that being the case, then we'd have to ask, well, why would they interpret that as being the sign that a king had been born? And this, this is where we would turn to Isaiah 60. In Isaiah 60, this is, what, this is what Daniel would have left behind for them when he left them Isaiah. Not 60, it's Isaiah 9, I believe. I wrote that down wrong. No, it's Isaiah 60. Did I get that right or did I write it wrong in my notes? Let me see. Come on, Bible scholars, tell me. Okay, here Isaiah 60 says this. It says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the deep, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. And nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And so they read that, and then they read as well in Isaiah 9, that, uh, that in verses 6 and 7, it says, For unto us a child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And then it says there's no end to the increase of his government or of the peace or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And then this interesting phrase, it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, which means God's saying, I'm not leaving this up to people. I'm going to make sure this happens. He normally works through us. And here he's saying, nope, I'm going to make sure that this happens. And so that light that they saw, they could have easily interpreted by reading scripture that uh, it, it referenced the coming of the Messiah. So these magi, it says, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I want to say this first. They, they were wealthy, but they were humble. Uh, Beth, uh, Bethlehem did not have a palace. This was just a regular house. And yet they're not put off by the fact that this new king of kings is born, and they find him just in this normal, regular house, which tells me that they, they had humility and insight into the way God works. And they had wisdom. They understood that uh, God often uses the simple things, the humble things, to confound the wisdom of the world. Because in the world's wisdom, if the king of kings is going to be born into this world, you ought to have the biggest palace anyone ever saw for him to be born into. But that's not how God does it. God brings him to be born in a cave and then to live just in a regular house for these months after his birth. And so these magi, uh, they, they had a very big view of God. Uh, as I said before, a little naive, but uh, verse 12, it says, and having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So the Magi uh, obeyed that angelic visitation, and it made their trip a whole lot harder to leave another way because there was only one other way, and that was going the opposite direction that they wanted to go in. But um, Jesus, the King of Kings, came into the world. John 1 says this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, that's saying that Jesus came, he brought light, but darkness doesn't always comprehend light. And yet, later it says he came to his own, and his own didn't receive him, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So to those who do see this light, they do, it, it, we have the ability to come to him. And in fact, it says later in John 1 that he, that he coming into the world uh, enlightens every man. So there's some respect in which Jesus being in the world gives everybody the opportunity to see who he is if they're willing to take that opportunity and if they're willing to say, yes, I see that. And, and then it comes into saying that for those that receive him, they receive life. And so the magi, foreigners, who come and, and they see who he is, they recognize, they come to worship. And we see juxtaposed against them, Herod, who lived there, who believed enough in the scriptures to go to the scriptures to find out where's the Messiah going to be born, but at the same time totally rejects the purpose of God for his life and totally rejects God's plan for this world. 
and, and gives himself completely to self-centered evil. It's no wonder when Jesus actually does begin to gather his followers, he goes to fishermen, not to priests. He goes to fishermen, he goes to shepherds, to tax collectors, to prostitutes, because God uses uh, his wisdom to confound the wisdom of the world. But it leaves us all here today um, really just with, the, with asking the question, have I opened my heart to Jesus? Wilson had us pray for people that need to know Jesus, and each of us need to ask ourselves that. Have you, know, have you personally come to a point where you've said, okay, I want to be like those wise men, not like Herod. I, I, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. He died for me, and I'm going to follow him. He's going to be my king. I'm going to follow him. If you've never made that decision, you can make that decision right now, just in your heart, right where you are. You don't have to do anything other than just tell this to God right now. Then you do need to tell somebody else because it's when you tell somebody else that it really, really takes root in your heart and in your life. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.